0: Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. We are exploring the intersection between psychedelics and spirituality here on our podcast. And we are interviewing uh, uh, guides, uh, shamans, uh, researchers, uh, anyone who is interested in this cross-section of what the new renaissance in psychedelics is doing in our culture. And today we have the very special opportunity to talk with Don Latin. Uh, Don is an incredible author, a prolific author. I've read a few of his books, uh, and the most recent book they're going to be discussing today is called God on Psychedelics, Tripping Across the Rubble of Old-Time Religion. Uh, welcome to the show, Don. I'm really excited to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to speak with you today. Yeah. So you, uh, I'm going to start kind of where you end because it really situates uh, your story as, as really, I mean, this, I found this book really personal and. Um, you had such a beautiful, you know, you've interviewed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people over the course of your lifetime, maybe probably thousands, uh, and but this book is—it feels like it really has this kind of personal feel to it, like uh, like you're opening up your story and your journey with God and psychedelics. And uh, so, I guess I'm going to just start, Don, with this uh, story you told about in 1989 uh, with the Navajo, and you end con- you conclude with that story of of reporting for I think it was the San Francisco Chronicle on right. uh, on uh, was it peyote and uh, the Navajo Church, and so. Take us into that personal experience, and uh, you were you were supposed to write on it, and here you had a, a personal encounter. Mm-hmm. Do you mind taking us into that as kind of the start of this journey with these ent- entheogens?
1: No, I'd be happy to. Well, um, you know, I was a newspaper reporter for most of my career, uh, you know, from the 70s to 2006. Um, I took a buyout from the San Francisco Chronicle, where I was the religion. I covered religion and spirituality for them for about 25 years. And, uh, you know, the whole breadth of religious expression, of course, not just psychedelics, but uh, one of the, well, actually the first time I ever did a story as a journalist where I also participated as uh, 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 in in a psychedelic ceremony was way back in, I think it was 1989 when, uh, so at the time the Supreme Court was uh, considering a case involving two members of the Native American church. And it was questioning their right to legally use peyote as part of their religious ceremony, or religious, religious life. Uh, and so the president of the Native American church at the time, whose name was Emerson Jackson, invited me uh, to come and participate, to sit in a typical uh, a peyote ceremony, an all night peyote ceremony on the Navajo reservation in order to let the public kind of get a better understanding of what these ceremonies are like um so that was a real honor because they would r- rarely let people outsiders into these meetings then they're even actually a little tighter with that now um because there's so much interest and hype around it right you know right now yeah. but so it was a real honor to be part of that um and it was strange because I, you know, I was going as a newspaper reporter. I wasn't allowed to take any notes, uh, take any photographs uh, during the ceremony, you know, interview people uh, around around it. So it was, I was really a participant, but I was, you know, I was kind of personally, I was torn because I was trying to remember what was happening because I knew I was going to have to write about it. Um, but then, of course, I would go off into my own kind of personal <laughs> Uh, trip my own kind of personal mystical experiences so it was a bit of a struggle for me I write about this in the in the book um, partly because the president of the church had not told the people who were called the meeting that they were letting a outsider he he had proposed to let an outsider come in so there was a big argument right before so so now you're
0: supposed to have this open mystical experience and you're kind of feeling judged by these First Nations peoples who are questioning why a white guy should even be there.
1: Yeah. So there was this debate, you know, half of it was in Navajo, so I couldn't understand what they were saying. Um, anyway, so it wasn't, you know, I mean, some people wanted me in and in the end, they agreed to let me sit, sit in. So I, so I came into it with a bit of trepidation. I didn't feel completely welcome. <laughs> and um, so dur- during the experience, um, you know, I got a little paranoid because I didn't really feel welcome. But once the once the ceremony unfolded and the peyote took its took took effect, you know, I had some very powerful uh, visions and mystical experiences uh, that well, for instance, there, there's a fi- there's a fire that's that's lovingly tendered in the middle of the teepee all night long. And at one point, you know, I'm staring into the fire, and the ashes, the the burning coals, take on the form of a of a bird, like an eagle, and flies around out the the t- the teepee and out the top. And at that moment, I looked across the circle at these Navajo, these old Navajo women, you know, who would hide behind these like peyote fans, you know, feathers and beads, these beautiful fans, and these beautiful old wizened faces of these of these of uh, these Native American. women and the one that had been kind of against me coming in lowered her fan and looked across at me and gave me this little smile like she saw that I saw what this was and then I felt welcome right Uh, so that was a real beautiful moment yeah where you kind Uh, of accepted as
0: one of them in that in that moment
1: yeah, yeah. So, I, but I really did get an understanding of how this is not, you know, this, these meetings are I mean, often a family will call it to deal with a crisis in the family, whether it's someone struggling with alcoholism or, or whatever. In this case, it was a, the family, the, the, it was a young family, a, a husband and wife with a couple, two or three kids and they were going to leave the reservation and right, the, they were moving yeah, yeah yeah and the and the wife wasn't sure she wanted to make the move and there was some tension in the family so you know it was so it was a mixture of like a family therapy session mm-hmm. you know so some very personal stuff and uh a religious ceremony uh, kind of like Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> because all the relatives were there, yeah. you know, and a very powerful uh, psychedelic uh, experience for everyone. So it was this. There was no separation between the spiritual and the therapeutic, or the mm-hmm. recreational, or the familial. It was. It was just. Uh, I don't know. It was. It was just unique in that way. Mm. I thought at the time for me. Yeah. Um, so so that, looking back on that got, that was Dawn, that's that just that
0: phrase that you just said that, that there was no distinction between the therapeutic, the religious, the mystical, and the everyday life of yeah. family dynamics and moving. I think there's something deeply profound about that statement, because I think what's happening in our modern day culture is these, it's almost like these things are being split apart, right? There's exactly. this medicalization yeah. of psychedelics. It's yeah. all just, you know, you know it's, it's two therapists in a clinical setting. We put the eye shades on these people and we kind of leave them alone. And it's almost like you just give them a pill versus I guess I'm going to be in an ayahuasca ceremony with people I don't know in Peru. And it has nothing to do with family or connection. It's just me on my my journey. And, you know, and that's a very individualized experience. We're talking about a deeply communal, interconnected, where the mystical and the everyday life and ceremony are part of what it means to be a spiritual being
1: yeah 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 and uh yeah and there there was even a kind of a part rec- pardon the works for recreational mm-hmm. aspect to it you know i mean that it was it was all those things it was all those things together and it was a uh, what what's unique about it or uh, or fairly unique about it is that this was a community of shared you know culture and values uh exploring this together and so you know one reason i wrote about this it, in this book is I, I, you know, I hadn't really written too much about that because at the time, you know, when I wrote that up for the Chronicle, I didn't put myself in the story at all. I mean, I, mm-hmm. the reader could tell that I was participating, but I didn't talk all about my own experience, mm-hmm. my own mm-hmm. visions or anything. By the way, um, which is so
0: much about that time, right? As a journalist, you have to like the word I is like, that's the... A dur- oh, that's thing a dirty could, word. Yeah, yes, I was right. like a
1: dirty... Yeah, right, and that's, right, the, right. you know, that's kind of the old school. And that's what I came up in. So, you know, it wasn't until I started writing books, you know, really the... Harvard Psychedelic Club, which came mm-hmm. out in 2010, which was my first, you know, kind of big book about psychedelics. Uh, I just put myself in the afterward of that book. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in the story at all. That mm-hmm. was about, you know, four guys who crossed paths at Harvard, mm-hmm. you know, in the early 60s. A brilliant book, by the way. Brilliant. Oh, thank thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So that, that book was the first time I really felt comfortable putting myself in at all. And that was a little afterward that I wrote. And then, then I went on. Maybe I've gone too far into the other extreme. I don't know. Uh, I wrote a memoir, uh, a, a book that was another group biography, part memoir called "Distilled Spirits." Where it, part of that is a recovery mm-hmm. memoir about some of my struggles with with other drugs, alcohol, and cocaine. So once you do that, once you write a recovery memoir, you have to really. Mm-hmm. Just your life is an open book right, right. now. You've just admitted all that. Now like Yeah. So, you so it now. sort of free, it sort of frees you in a way. You know, there's nothing to hide. Right. Yeah. So uh, so what I've done. So since then, I've done a book changing our minds, which uh, was a kind of a more uh, exhaustive look at what's going on in the psychedelic scene, both the therapeutic and the spiritual. Um, that one, I try to weave my own story in a bit. It's always as a journalist now, it's always a struggle for me about where to, when to, when to put myself in the story and when to get out of the way.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Mm. you you kind of you start the book um, really
0: exploring this uh, this Hopkins NYU study on uh, psychedelics and kind of spiritual beliefs where they they pull in uh, you know different th- you know different pastors uh, priests uh, imam you know Buddhist think they, they all have to have had never have taken a psychedelic and have been active as a spiritual practitioner in their community I think was the requirements it was hard to find both people who had never taken a psychedelic and are are you know either practicing in their in their faith? So they so take us into that. I mean, I, I've interviewed Hunt Priest on this podcast, who's right. one of the Episcopalian ministers who underwent that study. Right. And it was so transformative to him as an Episcopalian minister that he almost had kind of had, a, had a, a about face and said, I need to explore this. I need to explore this uh, as an as a opportunity to, to reform Christianity. Uh, and so he started Ligari Ministries. But right. tell, take me into this. Uh, you, you started interviewing James and Roger and Hunt and these others. Right. Take me into those interviews and what, would, what really impacted you from that Hopkins study?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting that, I mean, I kind of played an indirect role in the recruitment of some of these religious professionals, <laughs> because what happened was I had, you know, I had I had done magazine stories in a previous book where I interviewed Roland Griffiths, who's the principal investigator in that study at, at Johns Hopkins, and he had started uh, trying to recruit people. And like I said, they're looking for like, they psychedelically naive religious professionals. So these are people that had never done psychedelics, but were open to try it in this, you know, legal, contained, safe uh, container. Uh, And so he was having trouble finding anyone. (laughs) I think he'd found one person. Wow! And so he actually reached out to me and said, Don, would you like to do a story on this study we're trying to get going? And uh, I thought that was really interesting because I'm interested in psychedelics and I was a religion reporter. So, you know, and I do have a lot of, you know, connections in the mainstream Mm -hmm. religion world as a journalist. So um, I did this, that article, which was for this outfit called Religion News Service, kind of like a wire service of religion stories. And um, so those stories will wind up, say, that's, that particular story was, you know, printed by papers all across the country and some journals and magazines. It was in the Washington Post. But it was also in this uh, Christian publication called Christian Century, which a lot of, uh, you know, kind of moderate to progressive Christians read. So I think uh, I think Hunt and a couple of the other people actually saw my article in Christian Century, which also had an ad for you know how to, right. if you want to, how get to apply to be thing a subject. Yeah, yeah. So so it was kind of funny that when I went back, it, hunt 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 is also a, a character on my new book. And so it was funny to go back, you know, years later and talk to these guys and realize that I had some role in <laughs> right and actually in helping pull these people together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the experiences that they had, people had were, I mean, I interviewed four or five people uh, who were in the the study. Uh, you know, a lot of people were hesitant to talk about it. Ooh, okay. For, what do you think that's
0: about? For various reasons. Well... <clears throat> like getting found out in their, their, their kind of community. Like they want to do this on the sly, but not tell their congregation.
1: Yeah. Well, it's still a pretty radical thing for your minister to do in a lot of, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot of this culture, you know, I mean, we forget being in the psychedelic bubble, how, you know, war on drugs is still. Yeah. Yeah. People have, you know, all this preconceived ideas about, you know, drugs and all that. Uh, But so I think that's part of it. Uh, I mean, it was completely legal. It was a clinical trial that was legal. Um, and I think, you know, some of the, the the clergy who had to get permission or felt they had to get permission from their religious superiors mm-hmm. did that. I think Hunt and some of the other Episcopal yeah. yep. people talked to their bishops about it. But, you know, I, I they, they didn't go back to the pulpit and start preaching about how psychos were going to save the world. <laughs> right, right. You know, and I don't actually think they are personally. So and I think there's a lot, a lot of hype around that. But um, so I was impressed with kind of the cautious way they approached Mm -hmm. this and then tried to integrate it in their lives, but didn't start preaching about it right away Mm -hmm. um, after one trip, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, some people like Hunt uh, had a very positive powerful experience i mean as you know he says he felt the power of the holy spirit Mm -hmm. as like a bodily energy for the first time and like yeah and he talks about getting out of his head for the first time. getting out of his head right he was an intellectual life
0: was this theology dogma you know these kind of rational kind of post-protestant you know reformation kind of thinking and this was an embodied experience where he encountered the divine within not without in some esoteric way but actually inside that i think that's that's what people are longing for is a direct encounter with the divine yeah i i think a
1: lot of people are although i don't think most people are i mean Mm. you know i mean i I think one of the reasons that uh, the people at hopkins and nyu had trouble recruiting clergy is they were not particularly religious people for the most part you know they're scientists secular scientists Mm. and and they you know kind of had this assumption that well somebody is in the religion business because they had a mystical experience
0: well, that's, mm, that's not necessarily not, the case
1: at all. That's probably not the case for most people. People right. get into ministry, as you know, you're a former yeah. minister, right? Yeah. For all kinds of, of, of reasons, uh, let alone the people in the pews, you know. Mm. So I think there's a, there's a relatively small number of people, say, in your average church that would be interested in this at all. There are probably a small percentage that are interested in mysticism, no matter mm. how it's occasioned. Yeah. But there are a lot of people. And I, I think you know there are a lot of people in the broader culture, or people that have left the churches, some of whom are very interested in this, that are really looking more for uh, personal spiritual experience, you know, rather than reciting belief or you know getting wrapped up in the dogma mm-hmm. and the denominationalism of, of of organized religion. Um, but some of the other clergy, you know, didn't have such a positive experience mm-hmm. as Hunt did. You know, um, uh, there's Episcopal uh, chaplain, a woman. Uh, from Harvard, who had, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of a frightening experience of going into this void of nothingness. Mm-hmm. And she didn't really see at first how this connected to her, her Christian faith. Uh, and she described it as a very, very, very difficult uh, experience. Now, she reconciled that and came out with a kind of a different understanding of what that mystical experiences are not always positive and rosy right. and right. rainbows right. and right. bliss, right. you know. There's the dark night of the soul, you know, um, St. John of the Cross and all that. So uh, and, you know, some of the one of the one of the participants who was a rabbi, he didn't have a very powerful experience himself. Mm -hmm. And he started questioning some of the uh, presumptions of the researchers. uh, And he kind of saw that they were subtly trying to push people in a particular direction to kind of a new age in a way he put it kind of pseudo Christian Protestant kind of way of approaching this. So he began to question kind of the assumptions of some of the researchers mm-hmm. and started uh, like I mean, Hunt started Ligari, a Christian psychedelic society. This, this guy, Rabbi Zach Kamenitz, who's in Berkeley. Uh, he started Shefa, which is a Jewish organization. Mm-hmm. And in his His goal there is to find a way for Jews that want to interpret psychedelic experiences through their own faith, through Jewish mysticism, Mm -hmm. to have a forum to do that, Mm -hmm. which is which is great, you know. So so there are all kinds of different responses. It'll be interesting to see. Now, this the crazy thing is this study hasn't been published yet. I know, And I keep asking, like,
0: what's going on? Why can't you guys release this data? What's going on?
1: It's a good question. I mean, I think there's a couple things going on. For one, you know, Roland uh, uh, Griffiths yeah. has cancer, so he's yeah. been struggling with cancer treatments. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, part of it. But I'm not even sure that's the main thing. You know, they have a lot of different researchers at two medical centers, and they're all trying to agree, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, about how to write this up. There are a lot of people involved in this study. It's really, it's a highly anticipated study. A lot of people are waiting to see what they come up with. A lot of people are questioning already some of the, presuppositions mm. that go into this are questioning the uh, effect of expectancy you know how yeah. you expect something to happen whether that happens you know there, there, there's, a, there's a lot of critiquing of this study before it even right comes we, out. we don't even know but yet
0: you know when i talk to people like hunt and i actually talked to uh, brian richards uh, bill richards son who right. is doing uh, who's a therapist and working right. at johns hopkins and and it it seems like um you know, one of the things they were really curious about is does psychedelics kind of uh, create more pro-social connections? Does it create more uh, kind of porous belief systems? Or does it create, you know, does it lock down your beliefs more? Are you more open to other world religions? Or is certainty less, you know, do you hold on to certain certainty with a bit of a, with a kind of an open hand? Are you, do you encounter your own, uh, you know, images like you, you mentioned uh, that uh, woman, uh, I forget her name here, but, you know, you know, she said in your book here there's rita powell um yeah. she said i didn't see any christian symbols in my experience and i was expecting that and i didn't see that some others do see their own uh symbols buddhist or other uh symbols yeah. reflected in their experience so i think those are really good questions for a study uh and and you know as we think about psychedelics coming into the mainstream um Will this have a positive effect on helping, you know, move away from these binary in and out categories of them and us and demonizing the other? Is, is that kind of what we're
1: hoping for from this study? Yeah. Well, I think it could do that because I think these, these, uh, these medicines, these drugs, these entheogens, whatever you want to call them, um, do deconstruct belief, they deconstruct the self. Mm-hmm. i mean i think a lot of the healing potential in these and i'm by healing i'm talking about things like healing i think depression or substance abuse really come from kind of a radical realignment of the self and mm-hmm. seeing how the self relates to the broader world you know uh you might just call that ego dissolution or transcendence or a unitive experience there's a lot of ways to D- yeah, disassociation, non-dualing. derealization, yeah, yeah. you know, there, there are psychological and there are spiritual ways to describe the same thing. Yeah. Um. But I think they, they I think these medicines do have the power to make us more open-minded, mm-hmm. um, but they can also lead to kind of a existential crisis. Okay, well, then what is, what do I believe? You know, here's the set of beliefs I've had my whole life, you know, and then now I'm seeing something else. And a, a, a Lutheran pastor who I profile in, in the book, I mean, that's kind of what happened with him. He called it a crisis of faith, because mm-hmm. suddenly he asked himself, how can I go back and he saw He had such a larger vision of the divine than he had before. Mm-hmm. He had kind of put God in a box, I think is the way he put it. And he said, how can I go back to my Lutheran congregation in Nebraska, you know, a very conservative, you know, one of the most conservative states in the country. And continue to just promulgate these doctrines like nothing has happened to me mm. so he struggled a bit with that and one of the interesting things he said is he said he felt more like a chaplain than yeah. a preacher in mm. that he was like wanting to let other people to you know he was wanting to hear other people share their experiences of the divine he was not trying to necessarily impose his beliefs or the beliefs of his church as much as he mm. maybe once did Mm -hmm. Uh, So that that was interesting. There you go. There's like being more open, open minded, you know, more like a chaplain.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's kind of what happened to me, too. I mean, I here I was an ordained minister and had kind of uh, been, you know, pulling myself away from the, the typical evangelical church that I had been raised and pastored in because it was too small of a vision of God for me. But I really hadn't found or landed in anything that really made sense to me. And you know, and so my first, I'd never done psychedelics before, and, and this was uh, seven, eight years ago. And, and when I did that first high-dose experience on psilocybin, it, it gave me a vision of the divine that was so much bigger than anything I had ever thought about. And it, it, was, it was like, how do I stuff you know, this back into a box? I just, I can't. It was, it was an experience I had, not a book I read. It was an right. encounter I had, a presence. Um, And it was deeply transformative and healing and deeply feminine for me. It was, I think for me, there was a deep deconstruction of, of patriarchy in ways that, you know, no amount of reading feminist literature had ever done for me, but I had really encountered a part of me and a part of the divine that I'd really, really had bracketed out. And so, yeah, I relate to that of how do I go back to a congregation when this is, this has happened to me.
1: So you you I, I you were in the Christian uh, Missionary Alliance. Yes.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know yep. what I think of when I think of that denomination is you know Virginia Brantberg and David Berg <laughs> of the Children of God yeah. cult. Yeah. And oh, I use yeah. the word I don't always use the word cult, but in their yeah. case, I'll oh,
0: it's it. culty. That's culty. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I wrote a book called Jesus Freaks. You know about mm-hmm. this murder suicide yep. in, in that group. So that that's that's what I thought of when I. Oh yeah. Yeah, when I saw that, that was your denomination.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I mean, I mean, the founder of this denomination, A. B. Simpson, had all these mystical experiences and uh, was really big into the Holy Spirit and that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, they, this, but then it gets, you know, in a modern day, it gets co-opted by uh, by so many uh, kind of right wing evangelical kind of models of of moralism and uh, certainty so yeah this i so i can relate to these uh, these ministers who have these experiences and then are trying to like what do i do now kind of thing yeah. and uh and so this idea of chaplaincy actually really intrigues me you know like that that's that's kind of you know like what would you describe yourself at now and i would say that that kind of language feels um inviting to me if i could help chaplain people through the darkness of their life the hard times the good i love doing weddings and i love doing funerals and and you're like, love, because I don't mind being close to death. I'm, I'm okay sitting in those hard places with people. And it's yeah. in those moments that they want to ask the big questions. To me, psychedelics is really giving me um, uh, an, an opportunity to, yes, work on my own, my own life and heart and open it up, but also to work with people that want to do these kind of journeys to help them through depression, anxiety, uh, fear, Uh, all the kinds of things that we hope the church could help people with. And it just seemed like it had nothing. Like it was like this communion, this sacrament that we'd been giving, it was really, you know, just flaccid. It just was like, yes, you can have this, but it doesn't do much. And somehow this resurgence, again, it's not for everyone, but there's a sacramental nature to the mushroom that, that when it's done in the right set and setting and the right context of prep and community, it can be a powerful transformation for families and mothers uh, and fathers. And, you know, it's I just see the community impact uh, on, on how we can do this in community uh,
1: to really transform people's lives. Yeah. So one of the things I'm looking at in the new book, God on Psychedelics, is these new forms of community. Yeah. I, mean, you're, you know, I get you're probably an example of this yourself, but so I look. I, you know, for, for since there's a church in the Bay Area called Sacred Garden. Yeah, church. let's go.
0: In, let's go into Sacred Garden. I thought that, yeah, was which one is of which more is interesting, interesting an
1: interesting ones. story, and yeah. I kind of I'd have a whole chapter on them. Um, and and then I also write about the you know the ayahuasca churches, which are linked to some of this, this these Brazilian based.
0: Movements. Tell me about Bob Stanley, Bob Otis Stanley. What was he like, and uh, what what motivated him to really dive into this uh, this Christian community uh, psychedelic? Yeah, Christian well, Bob
1: community. is an interesting interesting character. He grew up in Tennessee. Uh, he has kind of Quaker roots, uh, but he was brought up in the Methodist Church, and you know, he was a spiritual seeker. Um, you know, he went to India, you know, got into psychedelics, you know, kind of the familiar story of the, you know, the boomer, or in his Mm -hmm. case, kind of post boomer, Mm -hmm. uh, generation. Um, and so he came out to the Bay area and lives in Oakland across the Bay from San Francisco. And, uh, he and some other people were involved in, uh, a decriminalization campaign, Mm -hmm. uh, they called it for a while decriminalized nature Mm -hmm. where, uh, they were trying to convince, uh, the city council to they can't really decriminalize any drugs but they can direct the police department to mm-hmm. you know to lay off the local mm-hmm. psychonauts and so actually Oakland was the second city to do this Denver was the first one and then Oakland California was the the, the second city the city council agreed to uh, to pass this decriminalization measure so the church kind of grew out of that so it's kind of interesting it's how the the they were kind of laying kind of the legal foundation. I mean some people question whether this is actually legal under state and federal law. That's lawyers argue that mm-hmm. you know based on freedom of religion but anyway, they uh of the last few years they've been slowly coming above ground. Mm-hmm. First time I wrote about them they didn't want me to uh, for a, for a newspaper article. They didn't want me to use their names mm-hmm. but in the last two or three years, a lot of people are more comfortable, you know, going public with this kind of work, and they're they're an example of that. So anyway, they have what they call, I think, I think maybe you've used this term too, postmodern yeah. church, where um, they're really you can pretty much believe anything you want and be a member of the Sacred Garden Church. There's the the creed they have, which is, uh, I guess, it's kind of a pseudo creed, but basically they say. Uh, You believe that there's uh, the possibility that entheogens, psychedelics, used with caution and respect, can open us up to divine presence, have the possibility of opening us up to divine presence in this lifetime. That's more or less what the the statement of faith is um but there's no they're, they're not telling you what the divine is uh, whether these entities or experiences you have it's up to you to interpret that mm-hmm. it reminded me a bit of of, of the 12 step aa groups where mm-hmm. the, they they write about having a spiritual awakening and connecting to the god as we understand him is the language they use in mm-hmm. aa um that kind of like we say more open open ended yeah. uh, exploration of the divine So one of the things I was impressed with at Sacred Garden is, you know, they require prospective members to spend three months going to various events where no psychedelics, no sacred plant medicines are used. So they get to know you, you get to know them. They check you out medically. You know, do you have any medical or psychological conditions that might be a red flag? So they're they're cautious about this, and they are really trying to form a community. It's not like a retreat center where you go off for a weekend, have mm-hmm. your trip, and then you go back to your life. They're really trying to build a, a community, a, you know, and a bit like we were talking about before with the Native American Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. a newly formed community. So it's a little trickier. (laughs) Everyone does not come out of this exact same culture. But um, so I I joined this church as a journalist, participant observer, but also sincerely as a prospective member. I mean, I was open to the possibility of not just as a journalist, but as a human, mm-hmm. uh, joining. In the end, I decided it really wasn't my cup of tea. Okay. But I did go through the process. I did have a psychedelic initiation with a, a sacrament called chonga, which is a yep. dried blend of same, basically the same plants that would be in the ayahuasca tea, but you smoke it. And they have a ceremony uh, up in the uh, hills above Oakland. There's a nice park called Redwood. Now were you in a group? Was it a group ceremony? It was a group ceremony of I, I did it twice with two different two different times. It was just you know five or six people, um, uh, out in nature, yeah. And uh, there was a lot of there was you know preparation before integration afterwards you know and um, um yeah, it was a it was a it was a powerful experience for me in in, in many ways. Um, I I firstly, I didn't feel called to continue with the church or really to for me to continue doing psychedelics mm. on a regular basis. You know, I, I kind of got back to the, something that Alan Watts, you know, said yeah, hang uh, up the phone. Yeah. once you get the message, hang up the phone. Yeah. Um, uh, and people that are in the psychedelic business hate that, <laughs> I found, but, mm-hmm. or some, some do, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, so I'm just at a stage in my life where I don't feel like I want to be tripping every week or even every month, you know, um, mm-hmm and I'm not a joiner by nature. So that, but, but I, but I respect what what they're trying to do at Sacred mm-hmm. Garden and, and the, the care and the caution that they take with this. And, you know, they talk about the faith of least, least dogma mm-hmm. and they use the term postmodern. And so it's an interesting experiment. I'm not sure if it'll fly or not. You know, mm-hmm. I have other concerns about that. And, it'll, you know, there's a certain bit of commodification a certain bit of pay to play, you know, in that, but, you know, people have to make a living right doing this work too so right, right. that's an, uh, that's an it,
0: i think it, it i think for me it it begins to highlight the possibilities and what I, I think i'm on, i'm looking i'm always looking through this lens of uh, at the way we've started this which is to me psychedelics are a non specific amplifier they are yeah. they amplify whatever is happening, right? So right. Um, it they don't have an agenda in that sense. They're just amplifying, and so this is why set and setting. You know, you you go back to your Harvard psychedelic club book, and this is you know the, these phrases came out of those kind of uh, that kind of language. But what I'm looking for are people that are really trying to build real community, that are trying right. to find connection for people. I think coming out of the pandemic, what we found, and I just even recently, the Surgeon General in the United States, you know, uh, identified loneliness and isolation as the biggest issue facing the West right now in, in America and Canada. Isolation. And this doesn't mean that we don't have people that we work with or even families that we're around, but that we don't have any, anyone that we can really talk about things at a deep, intimate level. It's all just kind of, you know, uh, transactional kind of uh, yeah. language. Yeah. And I think people are longing for true connection, to be really seen and known. And if, if psychedelics can help create those authentic communities where we can be honest and open uh, and be safe with one another, uh, that that to me is the kind of, that's the stuff I'm looking for is who's who's building good
1: community. Yeah, and I think a lot of young people, I mean, younger than me, I'm pushing yeah. 70, right, mm. uh, are really looking for that, you know. Back, back in the 60s and 70s, we kind of had that feeling more. We kind of had mm. that, the counterculture kind of had that, yeah. that feeling that we're kind of in this together, you know. Um, and I think a lot of younger people, even before COVID, but even more so after COVID are really isolated and looking for uh, some kind of a common culture to, you know, really, and, and like I say, be real with each other, yeah, right? Yeah, and really yeah. Really get into some, some and, and so I think doesn't have to be psychedelics. You know, I really see the psychedelic, so-called psychedelic renaissance as part of this broader kind of reimagining of religion, the whole small group movement. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, uh, whether it's men's groups, women's groups, you know, house churches, Bible study groups, you know, yoga, ecstatic dance, uh, 12-step fellowships, uh, or psychedelic churches and fellowships. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, you're I think I mean that to me Don is uh, I've been seeing this too. And your what you just said or you just listed like six or seven of these social things that are that are really coming online right now. And I think we've also seen the rise of you know in 2020 really Zoom came into our existence, right? And so before that, you know, we had a little bit of technology that could do that, but the pandemic forced technology to be able to we can have groups of people meeting online through through these kind of ways now they don't replace community but they're a really good starting place where you can actually see people's face and and the technology is good enough that it actually we can what we call co regulate with one another i mean this is the there's some studies out of vancouver island university with an organization that i've been tracking that you can, what they, they use something called polyvagal, which is the idea of sitting in a circle and as we see each other on Zoom, our nervous systems are actually calming down through, you know, through a, a safe kind of group. Well, that's brand new. We didn't have this technology you know, even 10 years ago. So these, this idea that you could find groups of people that you could find affinity with, that you can connect with is a really beautiful, you know, that technology has offered us, but it's no, it's no replacement for actually getting together with a real group of people uh, around a campfire uh, with men's work, or, you know, as you were saying with all the other little small groups and house churches and yoga groups and Sangha groups and, uh, and, and psychedelic groups. And I think that's what people are longing for is to be seen in a smaller community like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You, you, I mean, um, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a little tired. I'm getting a little tired of the zoom zoom. Yeah. I know, I know. Yeah. And this this hybrid zoom the, the groups that are partly in person partly hybrid it's in some ways that's almost seems like the worst of both worlds you're never sure whether you're talking to the camera or the person or you know <laughs> right. we'll, we'll see how it all plays out yeah, but I'm, I know, I'm I'm, We're I'm, trying I'm ready to, I'm ready to dump zoom my <laughs> zoom yeah well
0: I wouldn't get a chance to talk with you then but <laughs> that's true
1: no you're right no it's a great tool it's a great yeah, tool yeah
0: uh, I, I there's a, there's a there's you talk about Reverend John uh, Mabry. Um, yeah he he is a a Christian minister and he's written a book uh, I think it's called Sacred Journey um all about shamanism and Christianity and kind of mixing he's part of a, a and you get you get into his story a little bit uh can you kind of t- tell us a little bit about John and what uh, his contributions to Christianity and psychedelics
1: Yeah well John uh, was uh I think he he wanted to become an, he wanted to join the, uh, I think he could, he grew up in a Southern Baptist, I think, or, or evangelical church. And like you, kind of re- rejected kind of the smallness of that. I think he wanted to become, he started working with Matthew Fox, you know, mm-hmm. around Creation the time Matthew Fox was getting yeah. defrocked or kicked out of the Catholic church and became an Episcopal mm-hmm. church. So he had a Institute for Creation Spirituality here in the Bay Area. So John was involved with that. I think he wanted to maybe become an Episcopal priest, but he couldn't afford the cost of seminary. So he wound up being a a, a, a priest in a not a, a Catholic, but not Roman uh, 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 group for a while. And then he wound up uh, pastoring a United Church of Christ, UCC Church, which is you know, one of the more progressive liberal, you know, Protestant denominations. Uh, and, you know, wrote a lot of books about Christian mysticism. He's a real authority on Christian mysticism. He teach now. He's teaching spiritual direction at uh, a place called the Chaplaincy Institute, which is an interfaith. We're talking about chaplains before. You know, this is an interfaith chap. He's a Christian, but he's teaching at an interfaith Chaplaincy mm-hmm. Institute, um, and uh, he's also he's also my publisher. <laughs> uh, cool. He's yeah. He he's the guy who started Apocryphile Press ah uh, to publish p- publishes both the, his books and other people's books. So they have this kind of interest. He has this little interesting, small publishing house, which, which picked up God on psychedelics. So, uh, so it's a bit incestuous. But. <laughs> well, I mean,
0: he, he's, but more than that, I'd say it's uh he is, he's realizing there's an appetite for this kind of work. And some, uh, some of the other publishing houses may not be as interested, but this, you know, at least his book on, uh, I don't know. Have you looked at his book? I think it's called sacred Sacred
1: Journey, I think that's what it's called. I haven't seen that one. I've, 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 I've seen his book on the Gospel of Thomas. Yes, yeah, been really yeah. interesting. Yeah, which and, is another, and another on uh, another yeah. on sort of a sort of a introductory guide to Christian mysticism. Yeah, uh, but he, he's a great resource because he really knows the the history of Christian mysticism inside and out, and 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 is a great uh, popularizer, explainer of that to a general audience, which is yeah, something I, I think appreciate I, as a journalist. Yeah. You know. What I really liked about his, his writing is he he really gets, he kind of
0: pushes, you know, uh, he says psychedelics is just part of any kind of altered state experience. You don't necessarily just need plant medicines, that altered state experiences have been part of human history for as long as we, you know, have been on this planet as, as human beings. Uh, and so he says whether that's drumming, you know, using shamanic drumming, uh, trance-based learning. Uh, so he really opens up the, the mystical uh, as... On par with plant medicines, and he's not. He, you know, he's saying plant medicines aren't the only way you can kind of get into this altered state where
1: you feel the divine unity in these mystical experiences. Right, right. He's not actually a, a real proponent of psychedelics no. at all. I mean, he's not against it, but he's really yeah. more more into more traditional uh, yeah. ways of uh, of approaching these realms, but open, but open to mm-hmm. to, to all of them. Yeah, Yeah. and and then you have a character
0: like I mean, and a lot has been made of this, and I and I'd say he's one of my my favorite authors lately is Brian Mirarescu on the Immortality Key, Uh, and uh, it's controversial and yet so profound that Immortality Key, uh, Brian's book for me was uh, one of the more profound books I've read in the last while as he traces the Ellisonian mysteries from Greece uh, and these psychedelic experiences that with ergot in the, the, the vessels that he's you know using archaeo botany and archaeo uh, these you know ways of, of finding these vessels and he traces them to early Christianity and he says that there is evidence here at least he's yeah well this is what he's arguing right so I'd love <laughs> yeah. to get no no he's
1: arguing that I don't think he proves it at all I mean it's a really okay. interesting idea yeah And I mean, I I take a pretty critical slant on that book. Hey, take me, yeah, take take me into that. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not just me. I mean, I actually went out to interview, I interviewed some, John Mabry's one of them, but another a real scholar of Christian mysticism. And, you know, and and actually, if you, uh, there's an interesting conversation that interview Brian had with a guy who's at Harvard, uh, Charlie Stang, uh, uh, Jennifer And they had an interesting debate and he basically, Brian, concedes in this interview that he didn't really find the link between the ellicinian mysteries and christianity it's it's really speculation uh doesn't mean it didn't happen but it, he really doesn't prove that link and and then there's this idea i mean, he brian is really resurrecting this idea that's been kicking around for a long time called the pagan continuity theory yeah, yeah. Uh, Albert Hoffman, the guy who synthesized LSD, Gordon Wasson, the famous uh, banker, uh, mushroom specialist, and the other guy, Carl, Carl Rook, Carl they Rook. put out a book years ago, laid out this whole thing. So Brian's book is really kind of resurrecting that idea. There's been a little bit of archaeological evidence that maybe points to something, but there's really nothing connecting it to any significant Christian movement. There's just no evidence of that. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. I mean in this a lot of this stuff was suppressed by the church. Mm. But you there would be more evidence I think in the historical record of this if it really was a strong movement within the early church. Who knows? You know, right. I mean there's all Christianity has a 2000 year history. All kinds of things have happened during that period. Yeah. I'm not saying there was never, you know, people that were experimenting with this, but I don't really think there was a strong tradition of that within the early church or Maybe even the you know medieval or Renaissance church, but there are little tantalizing. Yeah, I mean, there's enough, moves, you know, to... and it's it's. It, I'm not saying it's not possible, but uh, um, he really doesn't prove it, and he he admits to himself that it's speculative. That it's kind of I think he said sexy circumstantial evidence that something may have been happening. So I think we can make too much of that. I mean, John Maubry, I mean, he has a very sharp critique of the book. You know, he thought it was kind of church bashing and um you know then i interviewed some other people that said there's really no evidence that this was a big movement within the church
0: ever so and and yet there is you know for him at least he he starts his book by looking at Johns Hopkins you know the same the same stuff that you're kind of looking at the way your your book starts he starts by saying listen what we are encountering is is people having these mystical experiences he was looking at the end of life cancer research and people no matter who they are are saying man, I had this experience where I encountered something and it's changed my life and it's giving me peace and it's allowing me to work with my depression and it's healing my trauma. And so, and it's true. Exactly. So he's saying, okay, if that's happening now, is it possible that, that this, that, that these plants have been used in these communal ways to help heal and connect people through ritual? And is it possible that Christianity may have used that in underground ways? It's an interesting premise for me.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely possible. Uh, and and maybe even probable on a small scale, but I think it was probably always on the fringe, just like it is now. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have these, uh, you know, and people don't think of them as Christian, but they think of themselves as Christian, like the, uh, you know, the Brazilian ayahuasca. Yeah, the Santo Dining. Which, which are syncretic movements. They're a mix yep. of, you know, kind of folk Catholicism, indigenous... Uh, spirituality, African religion, there's all, it's, it, you know, and modern kind of spiritualism. It's yep. a whole hodgepodge of stuff, but, you know, they have uh, Mary and Jesus in their uh, yep. liturgies and their ceremonies. Um, uh, same with the Mazatec yep. uh, mushroom, mushroom uh, yep. group yep. in Mexico. Sacrament. You know, they, yep. um, so those are like expressions of Christianity and entheogens. But they're obviously really on the edge, right, of the Mm -hmm. broader Christian. And I think it's probably always been like that. So I'm not saying this stuff never didn't exist. I'm just saying there wasn't like a real continuous movement that was somehow you know this kind of secret movement that's come somehow survived for two thousand years and 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 yet there's this uh yet there's
0: this draw that's happening and i and i i'm finding it i i was talking to one fella uh they were about to launch a ketamine clinic in in uh in salt lake city uh utah and i said oh my goodness of all places that you guys are going to start kind of uh Uh, And they were like, actually, uh, we have more people that have left the Mormon church that are now interested in psychedelics in this community than, you know, almost any other city. And I was like, what? And it seems to be like, I I guess I'd love to explore. And I'm finding that in the Fraser Valley. I'm out here just in in, uh, Vancouver area and uh, Abbotsford and the Fraser Valley where I live is one of the highest per capita churches, uh, you know, per people in Canada. And yet this is where people are leaving that kind of that faith. And yet they're, they're not willing necessarily to become Catholic or even to walk away fully from faith. They still have some kind of spiritual longing and psychedelics have become a place where they go, hey... I, I, can, I can still be spiritual but not religious, and these entheogens are helping me really reconnect with that uh, that divine in ways that are not necessarily uh, given to me in in the forms that they used to be given. It's not patriarchal. It's not you have to do this with a priest. It's personal, and yet there's a longing for a community. So I'm finding that these spiritual, you know, these religious communities almost become hotbeds of places where psychedelics seem to be... Yeah, that's really
1: interesting. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Utah. There's, uh, it's not a ketamine clinic, but uh, there's a church. I think it's called the Divine Assembly, mm-hmm. the yep. Mushroom yep. Church. It's it's they're all mostly Mormons or ex Mormons, and uh, I think the guy leading it is a even a like Republican state senator and former Mormon. Uh, Divine Assembly. Yeah, this is not just happening in places like Berkeley and Boulder right, and Boston, right. you know, it's, uh, there are big churches in Florida, Texas, you know, everywhere, you know, people, Bible Belt, you know, you name it, it's happening everywhere. Uh, yeah, it's, and it's, and I think that's what, you know, I, I love your book, because you had so
0: many different topics, right? You went into Jewish, uh, you know, the res, kind of the Renaissance of, of Jewish psychedelia, Christian psychedelics, uh, you know, this chaplaincy, which was a beautiful chapter really on chaplaincy and working yeah. with, you know, death and death. Dying, and I have a you know I have a friend and colleague here who uh, she's a palliative care physician, and her heart was really to create group work with psychedelics for end of life patients, and so now she's been given a clinical trial with Health Canada to run these groups. For end of life cancer patients, and what she tells me, as I done research with her and done video and and these kinds of things documenting this, and she says what people are looking for is not just a one off psychedelic experience, but the power is that they're doing this in a group, and all of these people are now addressing their death and their 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 mortality together, and psychedelics helps enhance that connection for each other. That's beautiful. It it is. It's profound, and and you know it's she'd be a great person to kind of you know. talk with because she's doing this kind of legal work and these group models. And and she says they're deeply spiritual. And I don't know as a physician, I don't really know have the language to really, you know, to to talk about this. But we need chaplains to be trained in this kind of work because yeah. Um. There's. Yeah. I mean, she she really uh, talks about we need these kinds of people, psychedelic trained chaplains that can work with these folks that are that are facing end of life. And so, I me, mean, I love that that chapter. And then I want to kind of dive into. You know, you came. You you mentioned in the beginning, you you talked really personally about your your recovery uh, your addiction, uh, and, and looked at kind of psychedelic, uh, recovery. Um, can it take us into that, uh, that story? Cause you had some really interesting stuff of bill, um, the founder of AA, and he had a really interesting letter to Carl Jung and talking about importance of psychedelics really in the founder foundation of the AA and recovery movement, but which is controversial now as a, obviously an abstinence only kind of framework. So, <clears throat> Take take me into that story that
1: you uh, were very open and personal about. Well, um, I mentioned that I wrote this book called Distilled Spirits. Mm. Uh, which came out in 2012, uh, University of California Press. Um, and the subtitle is Getting High, Then Sober, with <laughs> a famous writer, a forgotten philosopher, and a hopeless drunk. Mm. The famous writer is Aldous Huxley. The the forgotten philosopher is a guy named Gerald Hurd, who's mostly been forgotten, but was very influential in the early psychedelic scene and the, well, the the sort of spiritual scene in the 30s and 40s, and then into the psychedelics in the 50s. And then the hopeless drunk was Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA. And so I had my own experience. You know, I was a newspaper reporter. Drinking was a big part of the culture. You know, I was a, a heavy, heavy drinker, you might say, <laughs> for many years. And, you know, but- Probably, I'm looking back on it now, I'd say a highly functioning alcoholic. You know, I never lost my job. I never lost my house. I wasn't mm-hmm. like in the gutter or anything. But I was definitely a lot of control with my drinking and then with cocaine and the combination of the two. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I did the classic, you know, went to rehab, you know, rehab program. And and um, over a period of about, a. this is back around 20, 2004. So it's been a while, almost 20 years, you know. Wow. Um, so I'm about 17 years sober in terms of alcohol and cocaine. And for many years, I didn't do any drugs at all. No psychedelics, no marijuana. I mean, nothing stronger than a double espresso. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when I started doing my reporting for my previous book, which is called Changing Our Minds, Psychedelic Sacraments and the New Psychotherapy, which by the way, came out a year before how, how to change, how your, to mind. change your mind. By I know, moment. I know. And you're like,
0: oh, you copied him. I'm like, no, 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 because I, I read yours first. And I'm like, this was the first one.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, they're both similar. We both, yeah. you know, explore some of the same territory. Anyway, um, his book, did, his, he sold a few more copies than me. Yeah, I, I got <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, anyway, so where was I? Okay, so I started doing, uh, uh, I, I decided if I'm going to write about the spiritual and therapeutic expression of psychedelic work, I need to experience it you know, as a journalist. So I very gingerly dipped my toe into you know, first going to some ayahuasca ceremonies in Brazil and elsewhere and, and working with a, a, a therapist, uh, as a, as a journalist, but also, you know, my, myself and, uh, and then of course interviewing, you know, dozens of people who are the doing the research, the therapists, the uh, patients, the volunteer subjects. Um, so I, you know, I got back into psychedelics and, um, When I was working on distilled spirits, I I knew that Bill Wilson, you know, had experimented with LSD in the 1950s. He didn't get sober with LSD. I mean, he got sober in the 30s, although he was at this um, uh, treatment center in New York where they did have a kind of a cocktail that had some psychoactive plants in it. Hmm. Henbane and uh, some other... Psychoactive herb. So he his his uh, revelation, uh, which led to the founding of AA, may have had something to do with sacred plant medicines. That's a little iffy, exactly how much it had to do. But anyway, 20 years later, LSD was in the news. It was a promising new experimental drug. It was still legal it was being used a lot to help alcoholics. A lot of the research was up in Canada, actually. In the Weyburn
0: Mental Hospital. uh, Canada
1: was really leading the way in some, and in England too, a guy named Sanderson. But anyway, uh, so Wilson heard uh, about the the people using LSD to treat alcoholism and got very uh, interested in it and wound up having his own little psychedelic salon with some interesting characters in New York and Los Angeles, one of whom was Aldous Huxley famous writer, and um, now he was already sober, but he was suffering from depression, and also uh, Bill Wilson was, and uh, life lifelong uh, suffering with depression, and he was addicted to tobacco, which is the drug that killed him in the end. he actually died from his tobacco addiction. So he was interested in experimenting with LSD, both to see how it could be used to help alcoholics, and personally how it could be used to help him with his depression and his tobacco addiction. Um, And this was very controversial within AA, which was and is, for the most part, an abstinence only program. Mm -hmm. So AA was never quite sure how to handle Bill's period, which went from like 1956 to maybe the early 60s when he was experimenting with with, with LSD. Um, uh, So I found that really interesting, you know, as a recovering alcoholic with a background in psychedelic work Mm -hmm. and an interest in it. Um, so I was involved with some uh, people who started a 12-step fellowship program, which is still going on, called Psychedelics in Recovery. And they there's a couple different groups with similar names. This one particular, Psychedelics in Recovery, uh, really sticks to a 12-step model. Mm. They haven't just thrown that out completely. Uh, rewriting the 12 steps slightly in a way so that, that we are open to the possibility that psychedelics can help some people. Mm-hmm. uh, overcome their, uh, alcoholism or other addictions. And so this group has been going on for I don't know, close to 10 years. Now I was involved in kind of the early years of helping get it, get it going. Um, I'm not really involved in it much anymore, but, um, so there's, that's just an expression of, you know, one of the many ways that these medicines can, can, can help people.
0: And it uh, seems like, you know, even as you talk about that, it's, it's again, reminding me so much of, it's all the other things that we bring around. You know, we we talk about psychedelics as if they're a thing in in the, of themselves. But again, going back to this line of, they're amplifying. So right. I, the idea of creating a community, the idea of a 12-step program that already has a container, and then you can drop psychedelics into that community, into that level of authenticity and openness, uh, and you know, and and shared uh, where this is a safe space. Well, psychedelics in that container can really enhance connection, uh, openness, healing, You know, and so it's not just I go have this experience, but it's like, I have this in the container that already has a belief or or at least has a sense of like, um, you are powerless to help yourself, right? I mean, that's one of the the first steps.
1: I I heard someone recently use the term uh, communities of discernment. Mm, I like that phrase. Yeah. And that I mean, with the the psychedelics and recovery fellowship, you know, it's not that they're they're not sitting around doing psychedelics together. Mostly they're I mean they're that's not what you do at a meeting. you don't you don't take you, you no. talk about it. you maybe you if, if you've had some experience you want to talk about integrating it into your life um they're they're not like sitting in the church basement, you know uh, t- taking mushrooms or, right, <laughs> or ketamine right. or anything. Um, and I'll, and also I'll, it's just people who are considering whether this is a smart thing for them to do, mm-hmm. a place for them to talk about it and oftentimes maybe decide not to do it. Mm -hmm. right? Because that's the communities of discernment. Because if you're an addict or an alcoholic, you need to be very careful Mm -hmm. when you alter your consciousness. I speak from, I'll I'll use I language, right? Mm -hmm. I have to be very careful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I love to get high. I really love to get high. I love it too much, right? So I have to be very careful. And a lot of addicts and alcoholics, I think are the same way. So having a group like this, where people can just t- at least talk about it, talk about the possibility of it, get other people's experiences. Hear from people who had positive e- healing experiences. Hear from people who relapsed into addiction because of it. yeah those stories are out there too. yeah there's some there, and one of the reasons that I actually pulled away a little bit, I was seeing a lot of people using this as an excuse to get high, okay. And and, again, and I think there's you, a lot see, of that. Yeah. There's a lot of that in the psychedelic world. If if you're not an addict or that, maybe that's not a problem. There's nothing wrong with enjoying right, getting high. Right. Right. Right.
0: right. <laughs> um, you know, I am gonna just because it it. I mean, I have a bunch of quotes here, but one of the ones that really impacted me. Um, this is near the end, just before your conclusion you um, said, defining our own sobriety may work for some, but certainly not for all addicts and alcoholics. You're, you're right. quoting someone here, honesty, openness and truly knowing ourselves with the help of a supportive community seems to be the best route to recovery with or without a psychedelic assist. It's especially important for those of us in recovery to approach these compounds with extreme caution, to be clear on our intentions, to know exactly what we're t- taking and to do so with trained and trusted friends or guides. They are a catalyst, not a lifestyle, and they are certainly not for everyone, including many alcoholics and people addicted to other drugs. Then you end end this, you quote Houston Smith, and he says, as addicts, we know how easy that is to get to the, the state of, to change your state, to get high, if you will. If our psychedelic journeys do not lead to altered traits of human behavior, what's the point? If psychedelics don't make us more kind, compassionate, and connected, we're just fooling ourselves, we are, once again, just getting high and i think that's what you were talking about here yeah, is that's that, it. Right. you know and it's beautifully written and it really impacted me because i think that's if you'd say to me peg what's your drive like why are you interested in this work so much as a minister i'm interested in not just getting high as as wonderful as that experience is to be out of the busyness of our mind and the chaos that sometimes is in there I'm really interested in changing the traits of human behaviors so that people can uh, find more connection, more compassion, that their families can feel more whole, you know, I'm interested in Fathers and sons having rites of passage together. Uh, mothers and daughters using MDMA together as their daughters are navigating issues of body dysmorphia and cutting and finding that. I mean, this is, these are the stories that I long for, uh, compassion, connectedness. So uh, I, I really liked your framing there that this cannot just be about uh, dissociating and getting high, as lovely as that is. It has to be pushing us back in to the communities and families and relationships that we have.
1: Yeah. No, I've always loved that line from Houston Smith. You know, it, it's about, it's not just about altered states. It's about altered traits. Yeah. And, uh, you know, cause Houston was involved with, you know, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert at Harvard, you know, in the early years of the, mm-hmm. the dawn of the psychedelic sixties. I write about this yeah. in my book, Harvard Psychedelic Club, and, and he became very disillusioned with the whole scene as led by Leary and mm-hmm. and Alpert. Yeah. Uh, he didn't see a real, uh, community, uh, sort of like the Native American church in peyote. He didn't see that happening. There were a lot of so-called psychedelic churches popping up in the 60s. You know, a lot of it, and this is the same thing now, a lot of them are just looking for legal cover for recreational use. If we're really gonna be honest with ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, probably more more than, as, at least as many of them seem to be doing that, which, you know, I understand that. I mean, it's like, I don't, I don't think these drugs should be illegal at all for anybody, myself. But so there are there are out there there are very very sincere communities of people, you know, doing this. There are also a lot of people that are just using it as legal cover. Right. You and know. I think
0: that's gonna be trying to find that line, you know, uh of Obviously, the the big push for individual rights, and you know, every 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 citizen of Canada or U.S. should have the right to be able to ingest whatever plant they so choose. And well, I agree with that. Yes, I believe in individual autonomy. As do I. Yeah, consenting adults should be able to consume plants if they want to do that. They understand the risks and these kinds of things. And yet. I think there is one of the threads in our conversation day, today Don has started from that first experience you experienced something in 1989 in that in that Native American church that was deeply communal that was yeah. deeply embedded in family, in ceremony uh, in, in you know how we how we live together and it, it wasn't just about getting high it wasn't about how we how can I dissociate for this moment so I don't have to feel my life and how hard it my life is psychedelics when done in proper communal ways push us deeper into life doesn't they don't remove us from it in when it's done in the you know in these communal ways and so i i guess i'm 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 fascinated by those stories that you uh that you bring us to that really talk about how to build good community you know Mm -hmm. um you talk about this zide door church uh right near the end here can you take us into that experience tell me a little bit about them
1: yeah well like I said, some of these groups to me look more like legal cover, and okay. Is, are know, they one of them? Well, you know, like I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying the cops should shut down Zydrap, but if you go there and you see what's happening, you're you're gonna like it. they're just selling mushrooms to people. It, well, I, I, this guy Dave Hodges, who's yeah. the guy who started it, he he was running kind of uh, cannabis clubs, yeah. you know, before they before they. Uh, regulated and legalized cannabis, you know, and, and so he has a history of this. Uh, I think he's sincere himself. Mm-hmm. I think he th- he's a believer in the Terrence McKenna's, you know, stoned ape theory, which yep. basically is all religion started with, you know, apes eating mushrooms. You know, it's kind of like a bit like Brian Marieski's theory. It's pretty sketchy, actually, I think. But it's a belief that people have <laughs> and it's a belief that he has. And I think it's a sincere belief that he has fine okay but the way Zydor is structured is anybody can walk in there
0: mm.
1: and uh, join the church and get a membership card and then you get you you buy tokens mm. almost like kind of poker chips or something and that then you trade and then you go to the next room and there's all these mushrooms and you buy your mushrooms and you I get see. a little brochure that says, you know, be careful. Right. And uh, I'm, a, and you say you're a member of this church, and it's your religion. You sign a document. Right. <laughs> you walk out with mushrooms, and maybe you never see them again, or you just come back for mushrooms. It's not really. They had a few. You know, they would have a few services and ceremonies, but mostly it's a dis- it's a mushroom dispensary, which is very different than the sacred garden that has those 12. It's completely different. Agreements. It's yeah. completely different. Yeah, right. right. Um, no, I'm not saying that. Yeah. You know, and and the uh, interesting thing with Zidor is the police actually raided the place a few years ago when they first started. And they were actually more upset with them being an unregulated marijuana dispensary. <laughs> you know, they weren't part of the regulated right, right. of ground marijuana, marijuana so taxes. <laughs> they were both selling marijuana. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, anyway, they, the, the cops, you know, it was a whole SWAT team. It was a pretty vicious raid. They busted stuff up, you know, they cut into this safe where he would have just opened it for them, but they cut into the safe. They, they took all, a lot of cash, a lot of mushrooms, a lot of, a lot of pot mm-hmm. and wound up never charging them. Hmm. They opened up the next day or the day after. They've been going ever since. Oh, and they're still going. They're still going. Oh. Yeah, they they shut down for one day. And uh, oh, wow. the police are kind of just, it's kind of hands off, you know. Well, it's,
0: it's such an interesting, you know, same within Vancouver here. We've got, you know, eight or nine, you know, storefront. Uh, you know, and uh, they just sell psychedelics and mushrooms. You can just walk in and, and get it. I mean, yeah. in BC here, we have such an issue in the downtown east side here with uh, uh, with drug addiction and homelessness. And so, you know, our province just this year uh, made heroin, cocaine, MDMA fully, you know, fully illegal. There's, it's not criminalized at all. Um, and and you know because we we got this massive issue of of kind of a, a drug a drug problem the opiate problem, um, but as do we <laughs> yeah it's it's big so I think that we're gonna see some change here in the shift in, on on how people think culturally about drugs um, and my my I guess my question is going to be are are people going to be able to discern the difference between uh, you know. Drugs uh, that are addictive, like heroin and others, and and drugs that are not as addictive, but may have, you know, in, in, uh, lots of uh, benefit like MDMA, uh, you know, psilocybin, LSD. I mean, that's going to be a really interesting, what happens in the next ten, 10 years around distinguishing these types of more therapeutic use of, of, of substances versus ones that are not as therapeutic, right?
1: That's going right. to be an interesting. But there's, reason. you know, it's, <clears throat> the, you hear the word psychedelic exceptionalism, you mm-hmm. know, which, oh, psychedelics are different. Well, they are, but it's not that simple. You know, uh drugs that people toss in the psychedelic category, whether they really belong there or not, like ketamine or MDMA, even, which are not technically psychedelics, they have psychedelic effects. those can and are abused by a lot of people. Um, especially ketamine. A lot of people got into, you know, ecstasy way too much, you know, in the rave scene and uh, elsewhere and you reach a point of diminishing returns when you do too much for one thing so you know it's not and and you know there are other people for instance that uh can handle heroin or opium Mm -hmm. yep their whole life you know so it's it we have to also not fall into this trap of oh there's good drugs and there's bad drugs you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes maybe drugs like heroin can be more are more addictive Mm -hmm. of course so are alcohol and cigarettes yeah, alcohol is the worst <laughs> i mean i mean
0: let's just be honest right here as far as addiction. Yeah,
1: yeah so um and and it is there was just i just posted this on my facebook page there's an interesting study that was just released yesterday it was a survey i forget the guy who did it but it was a survey of people that are into drugs both psychedelics and other drugs and also people that are into like spirituality spiritual but not religious kind of seeker mm-hmm. groups So they, it was a survey, I think about 700 people wound up taking the survey and they found that something like 75% of the people who were doing psychedelics said it was at least partly a spiritual quest, 75%. Wow. And, but much lower with other drugs, right? right? So there is a, there is a difference. Yeah. Yeah. There definitely is a difference, but all drugs can be misused and abused. Mm, Yeah. And all drugs can be used uh, cautiously. You know, it's so it's Mm -hmm. it's not just, you know, good drugs, bad drugs. It's more, more complicated than that
0: you you end your book and uh it's not the end of this conversation but it just it's it's a really important because you mentioned ketamine you, you end your book by talking about uh um, working with your physician and uh for a ketamine therapy and, and having an in-home uh, ketamine experience and you you said this over the years i've come to see my in-home sessions as a holy trinity of psychedelic use therapeutic spiritual and recreational Therapeutic, because I've found ketamine to be a better therapeutic treatment than traditional antidepressants. Spiritual, because I will occasionally fall into a mystical, non-dual state of consciousness. And recreational, because like I said in the introduction, I really like getting high and
1: ketamine (laughs) can take me there. Um,
0: So, you know, you, you, and then you have this. And and that's why
1: I have to be really careful with ketamine because I see that, you know. Mm And people who know me say, Don, are you sure that's, uh, you know, so far so good. I'm having, you know, I, I do it in a specific container.
0: Yeah, tell me about it. You kind of do what you don't do it more than once a week. Um,
1: yeah. And not even every week, but it ne- never more than once a week. Okay. Um, and it's, it's prescribed by a doctor who is, uh, who it's legal you know, yeah. it's not schedule one. So it, it, you know, one of the great things about it is it comes from a pharmacy, mm-hmm. a compounding pharmacy. So you know exactly what you're getting, yeah. you know, the exact yeah. dose, which is, which is not the case with the way most people do drugs or illicit yeah. drugs on the street. So I basically, my, my, I call it my ketamine music meditation. Mm. That's the, word, the how I And so I have a playlist of evocative music, with, mm-hmm. much of which has personal meaning for me in various ways. Right. And so I'll put on, um, so I'll take maybe three lozenges. Yeah um, 300 milligrams. And, um, I'll, I lay down you often it's before sunrise, first thing in the morning, you know, down in my, my basement in a studio here, which you can see behind me is that bed right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I will put on eye shades, you know, the the standard protocol, eye shades, headphones, listen to the music. Uh, you, you keep the ketamine in your mouth for 15 minutes. So absorb and it's, It's much gentler than like an ejection of ketamine. I am. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so the whole thing, the playlist goes on for about 70 minutes, 80 minutes. That's when I know it's time to get up. I never get up beforehand. Sometimes I will uh, have the same dose. It'll be a very mild psychoactive effect. Other times it will be a very powerful, um, Total kind of unitive metaphysical mystical experience and out of body experience uh usually very pleasant, occasionally frightening um but I you know I'm experienced enough with this and with other substances that i I think I know what I'm doing. It's not something for everybody. I mean, a lot of people think you should always have a guide right there with right. you
0: You're I mean
1: my wife is upstairs, so if something happens, you know. <laughs> There's you somebody. Know,
0: Don, around, Don, but... I, I want to just read this because you, you just, you know, because it, it just it beautifully um, connects kind of why you do it. It says, you know, sometimes you said I'll experience this uh, uh, connection to a metaphysical state of consciousness infused with gratitude, grace and an incredible lightness of being. I, it, it can feel in a strangely comforting and occasionally frightening way like dying. But I've come to see that what dies in this non-dual state is my small self. From which I become so dissociated that it completely disappears. That allows me to connect with a power greater than myself, a state of consciousness that's always there, but hidden by the normal working of the get it done mind. I mean, this is why I'm a writer pig. I'm so much more articulate when I write than when I speak. Beautiful. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's why I like, you know, I I love interviewing really good writers because you've just, you've put, you know, when you're in flow, when you're writing Don and when you, when you say that, I mean, I can even, I can just feel it in that moment. And I just love your phrase here of connecting to something greater because, uh, it's often hidden in my get in the get it done mind. And I think that's, what's happening in our culture we're so busy. We're so consumed with doing that we have very little time of being and you get to do 70 minutes where all you're doing is just being you're, there's nothing being accomplished. You're just being with yourself in a loving way. I think that's profound Don.
1: Yeah. And there's lots of, I mean, to get into a state of being and not doing right. There's lots of, I mean, I was, I was involved for a while with this group was called the art of being and that's what they were all about. Nothing to do with psychedelics. Yeah you know, it was meditation, it was ecstatic dance, it was all kinds, of, it was tantra, it was all kinds of things, mm-hmm. right? But um, yeah, and personally, I mean, that's how my mind works, you know, I, it's always go, I mean, I am kind of a sort of a strategic thinker, I'm always like on the, the next thing. Part of that is being a journalist, you know, you have to to be a journalist on a daily newspaper, you have to almost anticipate stuff happening, yeah. and be ready. So when it happens, you can do a story in 10 minutes, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, the way my mind works, it's it 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 can be useful occupationally, but also can be sort of seen as a character defect, hmm. you know, or whatever, you know, I mean, it's so that's why when I when I do get into that state on on mushrooms or ketamine or 5-MeO-DMT, I mean, that's yeah. a very powerful way of oh, going yeah. there, which I write about in uh, my previous book. But um, so I kind of I mean, my my prescribing physician for ketamine says I'm a particularly good responder. Mm. is how he puts it, and I think it's because I really kind of need it <laughs> mm. because my normal working of my mind is that doing 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 yeah. doing doing you know? um have you have you come across uh, oh, I,
0: I can't see it here uh, that Daniel McQueen's book a psychedelic cannabis have you have you read that book yet? He's a denver I researcher. haven't, no. It's no. it's Don. You're really gonna like it. It's a it's a really important book. I think in in psychedelics right now, and um and he, he's looking at therapeutic methods and unique blends to treat trauma and transform consciousness using uh, a, a blend uh, of high dose uh, THC, sativa indica, and kind of a, a middle hybrid. And, and he's created a protocol for people to do at-home experiences with cannabis that are psychedelic. Now, again, I've smoked cannabis and used cannabis a long time. I'd never encountered it as psychedelic. Using his protocol and his way of blending, uh, it really was a profound experience and, and equal to many of the psychedelic experiences I've had. And his argument is to say, can we? Uh, can re-encounter cannabis in a way that could really be therapeutic for people for at-home use, doing things just like you do with, you know, headphones and eye shades for 70 minutes by yourself with a playlist. So you could go back and, and, and lay back into this place of being and connection. Uh, and so it, to me, his research is really profound and he's doing this out of Colorado. Uh, and I've talked to a number of therapists that have been trained and are starting to use cannabis in this way. I think there's lots of potential there too. So I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one day.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, especially the cannabis these days, (laughs) you know, is in some ways as strong or stronger than a mushroom trip. It can be.
0: Yeah, because I I actually am not a
1: good responder to cannabis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't like, I don't, I mean, I smoked it a lot back in college, but since then I've, I just didn't like the effect it had on me. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, but um, um, so I'm not saying I wouldn't be open to maybe trying that. But um, everyone's different; everyone reacts in you know a, yeah. a different way. I mean, th- there's a person I know in the psychedelics and recovery who was basically a marijuana addict. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You happened. know, kind of the wake and bake, right? Yep. You know, get up and and you know he's been struggling to find a way to use cannabis as a, a spiritual tool like this, mm. but it's tricky for him. Because he's basically that was his problem right. drug, right? It would be like me saying, well, "I'm going oh, to find a way yeah. for vodka and cocaine to be a spiritual path." Well, I don't think I'm the right person yeah. for that. Right, right. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've wrecked
0: that option. Yeah, that one <laughs> abused. Right. Um. Uh. Maybe in the final here, you you have a really beautiful conversation with Brother David, uh, a Christian thinker who is uh, really talking about, um, you know. Jesus, uh, encountering Jesus as an experiential thing rather than a dogma or again, a belief thing about trying to find a personal connection with the divine in that way. Um, Tell me a little about your Maybe you should.
1: Maybe you should read what I say because it'll be so much more a ticket than if I try to remember and tell you. <laughs>
0: oh no, no, it's good. I, I mean, I'm not here to read reread your book, but I, I just you have re- you're a really great writer, Don, and so it's it's to me it's it's worthwhile getting these little nuggets and getting you to react to them. So yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, brother David, I mean, he's he's still alive. He must be. Uh, I haven't heard much from him lately. He's still around. I, I I wasn't sure. I checked. You know, he must be in his 90s now. Mm, I guess. Wow. So I ran into him. I was actually doing an, I think it was an article I was writing for the Chronicle many years ago on retreat centers. Mm -hmm. And there's a place, uh, you know, Esalen is of course the famous, you know, human potential movement, Mm -hmm. Mecca uh, at Big Sur. There's a place a little farther down highway one called Immaculate Heart Hermitage, also called New Camaldoli Hermitage, which is a, a Benedictine Catholic, uh, retreat center, monastery, where the, a lot of the monks are hermits. They are off on their own. And so anyway, I spent a couple of weeks there as a journalist writing about retreat centers. And I ran into, uh, I, I think I talked to Brother David before, but I, the, the scene I'm writing about there is we're just taking a hike, you know, on this road over the beautiful Big Sur coast, you know, the cliffs and the waves. And it's just one of the most spectacular spots on earth, in my opinion. It just really opened, that place opens you up. Talk about psychedelics opening up. That's yeah. that environment really opens me up. And he was just talking about how, you know, we were talking about Jesus and how, you know, what was unique about Jesus. And I I can't remember the quote, that might be better for you to read the quote, but basically how Jesus was talking about everyday life, yes. you know, and not about theology. And um, and that this shift towards, you know, kind of from, some people call it a shift from word-based religion to experience-based religion uh the shift to personal experience rather than believe that that's kind of what jesus was also about i mean he was obviously an iconoclast right mm-hmm. challenging the you yeah. know breaking the, down the walls of his yeah. his time um and so he was just making some par- if I if i'm remembering it right he was making some parallels you know between yeah. what what jesus was all about and kind of what's happening in the broader spiritual sense and then he's and then he was talking about and another Forum, he was talking brother David was talking about uh psychedelics mm-hmm. and the church. And you know, he's and he's basically the um well, can I read it? Yeah, please. It's a, it's your
0: very last
1: because I think it's page. yeah, he says, um in whatever form we so he's talking about how you know, should churches get into this or or not, right? Yeah. In whatever form we dare to approach the holy. We must always do so with fear and trembling. We must do everything we can to prepare ourselves. There is reason to fear overconfident blundering into the presence of a power that takes us beyond ourselves. Yet there is still greater reason to fear a timidity that shrinks from the experience of ultimate communion. Mm. Then I say, Brother David was not saying that the stuff of organized religion, doctrine, ethics, ritual are unimportant, but they really only work if they, quote, Give us fresh access to that primary experience from which they well up, as from their source. And he and he ends by saying, even churches can become wastelands if we close themselves, if they close themselves off from the living waters of the Spirit. Wow, that that's is. The, like I think that's really the quote that powerful. I end the book with. So. And and
0: it's it's a uh, dawn. I mean, that I think when I read that, I mean, I just sat, I sat, and I. Uh... You know, I got emotional because I think, man, the church church is becoming a wasteland because it has closed itself off from spirit, the life-giving spirit that is so that people are longing for right now. And and I I guess I just see that psychedelics is one way that we could bring spirit back to you know these symbols uh, that have been for so many destructive, alienating, uh, you know, um, hurtful. Uh, And maybe there's a new renaissance of a really, uh, you know, something beautiful here where the the spirit can flow once again and heal and connect people. So thank you for that, um, for bringing us to uh, think about psychedelics beyond just the medicalization language that we often hear. Um, People get fascinated with the neurobiology and that all that. But this book to me really started to, to root it down into the need for community the need for human beings to find small groups whether that is in chaplaincy or recovery programs or spiritual communities uh, i i just think that's what this book was about it was about it's about coming back to community uh, as mm-hmm. really the place where we can heal and uh i found it very inspiring don so uh thank you so much for your contribution to this work and for a lifetime really uh, of keeping this this conversation open right of that the spirituality of uh, of our encounter with the divine through these plants is is can open up and change our life right it can actually change not just our state but our traits of who we are and how and who we are and how we live
1: oh well thank you thank you so much and just let it be let it be so mm-hmm. oh, amen yeah. brother
0: <laughs> Th- thanks a lot for joining me don and i look forward to more conversations on this
1: topic in the future great Th- thanks again i really enjoyed talking with you